I think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello, and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. Exciting news afoot. I will be at the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival next week. I am not 100% sure what they'll have me doing there for the festival, but I will be doing some stuff for the ABA, ready to man the booth, see some birds, and hope, hope for a mega rarity. If you are a podcast listener and you'll be there too, please come by the ABA booth, say hello. I will have some stickers for you. They'll, they'll be there even if I'm not, assuming I remember to bring them. We'll be doing our annual meeting and live streaming that as well. I, I can't say it will be crucially important ABA business that you can't miss. There's a kind of a pro forma aspect to it, but ABA staff will be there and you can mingle if you like. I hope you do. In birding news, a fascinating study published recently in the journal Current Biology looks at convergent evolution in perching birds. And while my own understanding of these genetics and stat-heavy papers is mostly surface level, I am an absolute sucker for a beautiful chart, and this paper is full of them. Convergent evolution, for those who have not taken intro to biology, is the phenomenon where two or more unrelated organisms evolve similar body plans or behaviors or, or parts like beaks, tails, etc., to fill similar niches in their respective environments. A, a kind of a broad example would be birds and bats, you know, both independently evolved powered flight in response to similar environmental stimuli. Their arm bone structure is very similar, but the wings themselves quite different, obviously. I won't, I won't go into bird-bat evolution for all that. You can check out my other podcast, Bats, Man, and Robins. Well, birds are an absolute goldmine for this sort of thing, for convergent evolution, what with you know, 10,000 plus species, quick reproductive cycle, the ability to adapt to just about any environment. And the paper illustrates some really, really cool examples. Uh, tree creeping, for instance, evolved at least three times in neotropical wood creepers. Shout out to my Panama friends. We saw quite a few of those. Uh, a family of tree creepers in Australia and Papua New Guinea, which are probably most closely related to lyre birds, weirdly enough, and a bird many North American, heck, you know, Northern Hemisphere birders are familiar with, the brown creeper, and for our Euro friends, the tree creeper, which is part of a family that extends into Africa, South Asia too. All three groups do the kind of crawling upwards on the trunk of a tree thing. None of them, none of them are closely related to each other. Another example illustrated in the paper, the long, thin, slightly curved bill adapted for probing Nectar in flowers evolved at least seven times on all the habitable continents and families like neotropical honeycreepers, southern African sugarbirds, New Guinea longbills, old world tropical sunbirds, and amazingly twice separately in Hawaii in the moho honey eaters, which evolved from silky flycatchers like Phanopepla, and the Hawaiian honeycreepers, which evolved from finches. I, there's more, of course, the authors go into sounds and colors and more subtle examples of convergent evolution. Looking at all this, you can almost forgive the early bird scientists for naming everything warbler, robin, bunting, or sparrow. 
almost. Which is a topic that we'll discuss today with my guest, Susan Myers, bird tour guide extraordinaire and author of the fabulous new The Bird Name Book. We talk about all the weird ways birds got their names after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of October, beginning of November 2022. The fall of falls continues apace as we slide into November, traditionally the wildest month for rarities in North America, though this October is going to be a hard one to beat. We're off to a heck of a start, though, with the report of the ABA's fifth record of swallow-tailed gull in San Diego, California. All previous ABA area records have come from California, save one from Washington, Swallowtail gull is a Galapagos Island near endemic. It is a really nice looking bird and the world's only nocturnal gull. The Humboldt current where this bird can be found is susceptible to food web crashes that can cause these birds to disperse long distances. The stellar sea eagle is back. Well, strictly speaking, it never left Newfoundland. But it was seen again this week in the little French territory of Saint-Pierre et Miquelon, just south of the island of Newfoundland, where it is a first record, maybe a first First France record, technically speaking? Who knows? Is the bird on the move again? Time will tell. Other first records to report, of which we have a fair few. In Kentucky, a pair of American oyster catchers were seen near Louisville, representing a first for this almost exclusively coastal species that nonetheless has a weird tendency to randomly show up hundreds of miles from the coast for no discernible reason. Up to Minnesota, which has had a fantastic year for new birds, where a phainopepla in the far, far north of Duluth is a first record. Well, it certainly seems unusual for a desert southwest species to be that far out of range. Phainopepla does have a pattern of vagrancy with previous records from Illinois, Ontario, and Saskatchewan. New Jersey's first record of Hammond's flycatcher was seen in Monmouth County this week. Interestingly enough, only a few days after one was seen in Pennsylvania, which was that state's third. And a couple weeks after Georgia's first, among a spate of hamos this week that also includes Alabama's second. And up to Alaska, which got yet another first record this week, a Black Burnian Warbler in Ketchikan. This is Alaska's eighth new record this year, a fascinating mix of birds from both Eurasia and North America. Those are the highlights of the week, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and ABA community. If the English language is an amalgamation of words from thousands of other languages and cultures, then English common bird names are that writ small. Listeners of this podcast know that I find this mashup of historical and evolutionary influences fascinating. And now there is a book that speaks directly to my birding heart. It is called The Bird Name Book. The author is Susan Myers, an international guide with wings, birding tours. It is out from Princeton University Press now as of the airing of this episode. Susan, welcome. I'm delighted to talk to you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for asking me to talk. Absolutely. Um, we'll start off with the kind of broad scale. Um, what do you find so interesting about bird names? Oh, where to start? I mean, yeah, right? they're, all, <laughs> they're all interesting, aren't they? It's just, uh, just uh, you know, the historic background and the weirdness. I guess, of yeah. a lot of the bird names that we use that, and many of them that we take for granted and we just yeah. don't even think yeah. about where did that name come from, like eagle or thrush or heron or, you know, um, and, that, and then there are all those weird names and the influences from other cultures, as you mentioned earlier. When you think about where they originated, uh, it's fascinating. 
one of the one of the things about being a bird guide is that you have to have all these sort of little random facts <laughs> about the birds that you see, the the color, yeah. the the experience for your clients. That's true. Um, is that sort of where the idea for this book is that where it came from? Yeah, you nailed it. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I've been yeah I've been guiding for like uh, I don't know twenty five years now. Right. Yeah. yeah. Way too long. Um, <laughs> shows how old I'm getting. Um, and I, I can tell you, I've never led a tour where somebody hasn't said to me, oh, you know, what does that name mean or where did that name come from? Yeah. And, you know, it always got me thinking, well, you know, we're, you're asking me where did the name Euhena or Sibia or Fulveda come from, which yeah. sounds exotic to us. But we never say to ourselves, well, where did the name Bunting come from? Right. You know, or, yeah, it's just or like in the, in the water, right? Yeah. We don't even, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So when you think about it, um, it's like, well, where did the name Heron come from? And then I started to look into it and um, I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. You know, never you, you don't give it a second thought, but when you look right. into it, it's really, really interesting. And uh, initially I was just going to like do a website and then mm-hmm. I realized, hey, it's way more interesting than this and there's, there's a yeah. way more information to impart. So eventually it became a book. Every once in a while, a book uh, will come out in the sort of the birding world that you don't really realize that you needed or wanted. And uh, I think this <laughs> yeah. definitely fits in this. Like, oh, man, everything oh, well. in this is is so cool. Like all these sort of etymolo- etymological backgrounds of all these birds. Mm-hmm. Like, as you say, heron yeah. and eagle and finch and all these things that we take for granted. Yeah. How did you yeah. go about doing the research for this? Because I imagine that you had to go way, way back for some of these birds. Yeah, yeah, well... There, I, I did. I think some of the earliest um, quotes that I include are from the ten hundreds, so um, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, yeah. There's a there's an online thing called the Biodiversity Heritage Library, mm-hmm. which basically has accumulated um, books and magazines and articles from like way back when. Um, that was an enormously valuable res- um, resource. So I use that a lot and, um, you know, just uh, lots of historic information in Middle and Old English and, yeah, yeah, there's a wealth of resources out there. I imagine so. Like, what is the, what is the oldest bird name that you are able to come across? And I, I guess when I say that, I, I'm acknowledging that there are, um, there are indigenous bird names from cultures all over the world that probably stretch back yeah. you know, multiple millennia. Um, oh, yeah. we're talking, you know, sort of English language, um, yeah, how they the, came uh, into the English language. Is, yeah. Yeah. Obviously this is an English language book, so yeah, there's a right. bias towards that for sure. Sure. Um, uh, the oldest, uh, I'm trying to remember what it was now. I can't remember. It is something like heron, um, hmm. or goose, I think it is. Goose. Oh. That's, huh. that's the one. That's the oldest bird name. If I recall correctly, I'd have to look up the book. <laughs> that that makes sense because when you think about like people pre-modern culture, people like thinking about yeah. how they use birds, the goose would be like super important. Not only is it a huge yeah. source of food, but what they're everywhere mm-hmm. and their comings and goings sort of, you know, signal the seasons changing. And then you've yeah. got um your domestication as well comes along after the after a while. Exactly. Yeah, goose would seem yeah. to be like maybe the most important yeah. bird in human history. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, um, so originally the the word for bird was um, fowl. All all birds were referred to as fowl. It's in the intro to the book, which I encourage people to book. 
because it's pretty interesting. Um, and, um, you know, then that went by the wayside. Bird, the word bird was originally a word for any small um, small animal, not just birds, huh. mammals. Even small children were called. Uh, <laughs> it, used to, it wasn't bird, it was brid. Uh, and then it, uh, the letters got transposed and huh. became bird. And that's the word that we use today. But originally, uh, English speakers, old English speakers, called them fowl. Yeah, they're all well, fowl. Yeah, yeah. But the, uh, specifically for a bird, goose is the oldest. Wow, so, that's yeah, pretty interesting. It's fascinating. Yeah, mm. birding, um, you know, field ornithology. What we think of is is like field birding. It's this kind of interesting mm. natural history field that you know there's significant overlap between amateur natural historians. And professional academics, and even like just the general public who use birds for, yeah. I don't know, food. Um, with yeah. that in mind, who do you think bird common names are are for, and has that changed over the yeah. millennia? I guess that we've been aware of birds. Well, um, you know, as as we're all aware, one of the reasons birding is so popular is that birds are like amongst the most visible of all the mm -hmm. animals around us. We see them every day. They stand out. We hear them. Um, so, you know, people have been communicating about birds using common names for forever, as long mm -hmm. as there's been people. Um, and these bird names have all evolved um, over time to what we use now. But up until relatively relatively recently you you could go to even a different area in the same country and the names for the birds would all be different yeah th this idea of like this this common uh, common names these names that we share mm -hmm. across countries across cultures that's a relatively recent uh exactly recent thing yeah. it's actually kind of surprising how recent that is to be honest it is yeah again i talk about that in the introduction um mm -hmm. uh, attempts to standardize the uh common english names for birds have been um uh, yeah, very recent, really. Um, I think the American Ornithological Union was one of the first to try to standardize yeah. the English names, but that was just for North America, not worldwide. Yeah. It was only, I think, in the 1970s that uh, an attempt was made to standardize them for the world. I, I'm sure you're aware of the the big effort ongoing right now, this this avian working group that's trying to make a stab and yet another stab at a collective yeah. um, standardized English common bird names. And, you know, they may well get it um, just because, mm. you know, communication is so much easier now than it was way back when people yeah. were trying to do it. It's just really interesting, this this ongoing effort to be um, at least know what <laughs> someone in another country is talking about when they talk about birds. It's sort of a funny thing yeah. now gray plover versus black-bellied plover and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, mm -hmm. th this does have yeah. real import to conservation and communication issues, I, w I would imagine. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if we can't communicate about the birds, <laughs> um, then, you know, conversations will be nonsensical. But, um, you know, obviously there's still a lot of difference. If you um, use eBird, you mm -hmm. can choose which which nomenclature you want to use. Um um, yeah. yeah, just the other day I was with a group of Americans in um, in Australia and we were talking about Major Mitchell's cockatoo. Uh, the right. eBird list in American calls it pink cockatoo, which is an awful oh, name. Right. Um, and But we still call it Major Mitchell's cockatoo. But Major Mitchell was a very unsavory character, even for right. his times. Uh, so that name should probably be changed. Uh, but we, we still call it that in, in Australia. Cockatoo, 
<laughs> Surely, yes, we had that conversation. <laughs> uh, what are some yeah. of the you know strangest or or even the most sort of interesting origins for bird common names? Oh, there are so many. Um, yeah, I find the Hawaiian names really interesting for a number of reasons. Um, we're you know we're having a conversation, a worldwide conversation about bird names at the moment, and mm-hmm. you know whether we should change them and. Um, my approach to that is a bit more nuanced than than some. I'm not for it or against it. I mm-hmm. take each case by case. But um, the Hawaiian names are really interesting because um, I think uh, in many cases they're almost unpronounceable to English speakers. They're diff- they can be difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so there's that. Yeah, unusual names. Uh, there are names that were brought... Um, like, for instance, Potu is really interesting. People just assume it's an onomatopoeic name. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of Americans pronounce it Potu. Uh, I think I would pronounce it Potu. It's one of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe once we get all the common names straightened out, we can have a universal <laughs> We can talk about pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but um, it turns out that it actually it is onomatopoeic, but it's um, from an African language. And oh. it was brought by the slaves to the Caribbean, and it oh. actually just means owl. Oh, that yeah. makes sense. So yeah. it's on a peak, but it's on a peak for owls in Africa, not for yeah. the potu in uh, Central and South America. Huh. I, I guess the similar sort of thing would be for like bubuk or some of those other sort yeah. of unusual South Asian uh, owl, actual owls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The original bubuk is Australian. Oh, uh, there you go. It's a, yeah, it's an Aboriginal word. Yeah. Huh. Again, onomatopoeic. Lots of onomatopoeic Lots names. Lots of onomatopoeic. Yeah, it, it's interesting yeah. you mentioned the Hawaiian bird names. I, I, I like the Hawaiian names like more in theory, perhaps maybe than, yep. than in practice. And I, I wonder if that played a part in sort of the, the conservation issues that the, the uh, Hawaiian birds have dealt with. You know, sometimes those names yeah. don't, or they're not memorable, I suppose. Uh, and, and maybe yeah. that's there's there's an effort that needs to go into it on our part to be make those more memorable. But you know, it's sometimes hard mm. to tell the difference between a KKK and a KK and a KKA, <laughs> and um, yeah. what the conservation <laughs> issues regarding both of those birds. I mean, they both need it, but one perhaps more yeah. than others. No, I know exactly what you mean. Um, the the other issue is um, is it disrespectful to be pronounce, mispronouncing? Names a lot of that, too. that belong to indigenous people. Uh, you know, there's been talk about um, changing the names of some of the Australian birds to Aboriginal names. Mm-hmm. There are over 300 different Aboriginal languages. So, which exactly. one do you choose? Right. Um, is it disrespectful right. to choose one over another? And almost certainly we're mispronouncing them if we choose yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so. no doubt. I imagine that's, yeah, and, you know, Southeast Asia is famous, uh, New Guinea in particular, for having languages that are having a wide diversity of different languages and cultures, as different as Mandarin Chinese is from French. And um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, um, for English speakers, almost impossible to pronounce correctly. Yeah, perhaps completely impossible. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Were there any um, sort of surprises, um, common knowledge that was debunked or names... uh, that perhaps were commonly thought to refer to one thing, but referred to something completely different when you, that you discovered in your, doing your work? Yeah, there were plenty of surprises. Potu was one of them. Mm-hmm. It originally came from an African language. Uh, let me think. Oh, yeah, and a few things that uh, I had assumed were derived from local languages like 
Hindi or whatever, mm-hmm. but uh, found out that they're derived from um, just boring old Latin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one that one that I noticed yeah. in just like scanning through your book was emu. You know, I'd always assumed that yeah. that was oh, right. uh, an Aboriginal name. Mm-hmm. But it turns out mm-hmm. it's, it's Portuguese. <laughs> yeah, pretty wild. You and a lot of Australians too. I'm sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. And here, well, I'm not in Australia at the moment, but in Australia, a lot of people call the blackneck stork Jabiru. And mm-hmm. if you try to tell a lot of Australians it's actually a Portuguese word and it's not an <laughs> Aboriginal word, they'll get really irate with you. Um, and it's, uh, there's nothing I can do about that. <laughs> See, it is yeah, what and it is. <laughs> it's, a, it's sort of only, I mean, they're both storks, but the relation between the Jabiru of, of Asia and Australia yeah. and the Jabiru of uh, the Neotropics is not really there. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like just yeah. an accident, an accident of uh, etymology it's, and those sorts of things happen all the yeah. time in birds' names, it seems like. Yeah, and it's interesting that somehow that name got to Australia and uh, people assumed it was an Aboriginal word. Yeah. Jabiru actually means swollen neck. It's better for the neotropical Obvious. one, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Obviously, the black neck stalk doesn't have that. So. Uh, you know, we're talking about English common names here, which are the ones predominantly used around the world, but certainly not the only you know, common names used around the world. Uh-huh. Um, do you yep. see any conflicts between English names and names that are potentially used in other languages? No, I think um, I think it's interesting that the uh, just like the English language, uh, uh, you know, you'll go all the way around the world and people will know the English names and right. use them even if they have their own names for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I go to Japan a lot, and the Japanese have have uh, names for you know, their own names for all the birds. Um, even when they travel overseas, they have their own um, lexicon of, of names. Yeah, uh, not sure what, what you mean by conflict. I guess issues with communication. You know, people might call it by oh. one name or, or another and then you, yeah. you sort of issues. Like a lot of um, local names, like Japanese names or, or German names or Swedish names or whatever, mm-hmm. other people who have tried yeah. tried, tried to come up with a standardized names in their local languages. Um, yeah. A lot of times it's a direct translation of the English language name, but a lot of times it's completely different. And that's true. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder if there's any confusion yeah. about whether, when that happens. You, you travel in South America a lot. I take it. Do you, do you find yeah, a little bit, do you find that uh, a lot of the local guides don't know the English names for the birds or sometimes, and a lot of times they will use scientific names, obviously, because that's yeah. the, the ultimate that's universal the name. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and Spanish language is particularly difficult because every Spanish speaking country mm-hmm. seems to have like their own localized names oh, their own. for, yeah. for, for even the same species of birds. Like, and mm-hmm. we deal with that in the mm-hmm. Southern United States too, when a bird will come over from Mexico and, or yeah. from Cuba, like the same bird will be, it'll be like an indigo uh-huh. bunting, but it's actually, the names are not the same at all. And I, I forget yeah. who are. Frank Izaguirre wrote a really nice article for uh, Burning Magazine about that. Um, he's, a, he's a Spanish speaker. And um, okay. uh, it, it's just, it's, it's can be confusing for efforts to like come mm. up with like a standardized Spanish list of birds. Yep. Um, yeah. Whereas in English, well, it's, it's more the same less, issue. Yeah, it is now, but it didn't used to be. Yeah. And I yeah. guess we've, so. I sort of <laughs> gotten to some <laughs> solve that issue. Their the names are more or less the same across English speaking yeah. peoples, but um, there are some obviously some some major issues still there. Mm. Yeah. Well, um, which brings to mind another um, uh, related sort of thing: um, the English name for loon, uh, 
the right. English English name is diver. And if mm-hmm. you call it a loon, a lot of the English birders will sort of get a little upset and say, no, it's a diver. <laughs> Where in actual fact, the, uh, the word loon was first used by Ray and Willoughby back in the early 1600s. So oh, really? that makes it English. <laughs> <laughs> they change us like yeah. soccer and football. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's legitimate to call it loon as well. Um, so <laughs> do you have a favorite bird common name, uh, one that you really enjoy calling out when you are you know, leading a tour <laughs> or even your favorite types of bird names? Yeah, yeah. Uh... Let me say, uh, one of my favorite bird names uh, is Fluffyback Titbabbler. I just think that's <laughs> just a fantastic name. <laughs> yeah. I always enjoy, I always yeah. enjoy that. Uh, but if you're talking about the, you know, this, this book deals with the group names, not the, not the full names of birds. That would be way too much. Mm-hmm. That would be over 10,000 entries. So um, <laughs> You wouldn't be able to say as yeah. much about each one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do enjoy the Hawaiian names, but uh, they're real tongue twisters at times. Yeah, I, I was um, I was recently in, in Panama, and um, there's a bird in eBird that's called a checker checker throated stipple throat, um, which oh, in yeah. most of the Don't field guides that? is called checker throated <laughs> ant bird, which makes a lot more sense. But ch- I love the fact that it. Yeah. Um, there are two different descriptions for its throat in the same common name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting to think of birds that uh, say their names twice, basically. Right. <laughs> but um, yeah. I actually included that example of stipple throat in the book. I, th- I think um, I made the point that it's one of the few birds. The new name checker throated stipple throat for checker throated ant wren certainly seems clumsy. I wrote, <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. To say the least. Yeah. Uh, as you write in the introduction, you know, bird names are sort of at the front of people's minds uh, more than maybe they ever have been. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts about the movement to to change birds with eponyms, you know, named after people, or even just to sort of acknowledge that sort of forgotten history of uh, of some of these individuals? Yeah. Um, um, well, I do make the point in, in the introduction mm-hmm. that sure. that conversation isn't within the scope of the book, but... Uh, Naturally, when you're writing about a book like this, you uh, writing a book like this, you come away with um, uh, your own ideas about things. Um, yeah, I think I, I agree in some cases, and I disagree mm-hmm. in others. I think that um, this automatic assumption that they were all bad people is unfair. Um, uh, I think a lot of those people were, and and men nearly always, were products of their time. Um, which doesn't excuse the behaviour of some of them, but there there is a lot of misinformation going around. There was an article published in the Washington Post, I think it was, quite a few months back, um, where Alfred Russell Wallace was used as an example, and it was full of errors, claims that he'd gone to Africa and things like that. I was, um, I was very surprised when I read that. I was like, where are the editors, <laughs> you know, the fact checkers? <laughs> uh, but it got published in the Washington Post of all, all things, added fuel to the fire, I guess. I think that um, personally, I think, yeah, let's change some of the names, but let's mm-hmm. also not forget history because the history of the names is also fascinating. There's some really interesting uh, aspects in there for yeah. sure. Um, yeah, and, and yeah. some of the people are just like more colorful characters than harmful characters, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I, I am especially a fan of uh, Gould, um, John Gould, yes. um, the, yeah. who basically named more 
English gave more English names than just about any person in, in history, just, largely because mm-hmm. he was a I, he was a marketer more than anything else. Yes. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and you just named all these crazy hummingbirds after Jules and and you know, yeah. fairy and coquette and all these uh, you know, names yeah. that we think of as like really shining examples of great bird English names, I think of. I mean, I love those oh, names. Aren't so they wonderful. Yeah. And and yeah. yeah, they're basically so he could sell tickets to his his stuffed hummingbird <laughs> show, more or less. Yeah, yeah. And his books. He he sold yeah. um, you know, those mo- wonderful monographs. Yeah, I agree. Hummingbirds are names are amongst my favorite for sure. Uh I notice you on your podcast. You have a particular bias towards hummingbirds. I suspect I they're like a favorite group of yours. It's hard <laughs> yeah. not to like hummingbirds. I'll say that. Yeah, no, there's something wrong with you if you don't. <laughs> Absolutely, just I think, and I think I think that they are sort of the perfect combination of just a really wonderful, unique bird family that is so mm. bizarre and mm-hmm. fascinating, mm-hmm. and um, and just yeah. really fantastic names. They really like distill that that uh, the amazement you feel when you see a really fantastic hummingbird uh, in a really wonderful yeah. way. And I, I would love to see some of those names too. I mean, if we're going to get into you know changing names, I, I definitely think eponyms are are up there in terms of uh, in terms of names that probably should be looked at. Um, but there are some mm-hmm. really weird names out there. <laughs> One of my pet peeves is uh, are mm. these names that are kind of used very widely across avian taxonomy. Um, but they don't have any sort of connection to, you know, interrelated species, things like oh, yeah. warbler and sparrow and flycatcher and all these names that, yeah. Yeah. you know, if I, if I could go back and wipe out all the bird common names and restart from scratch, I would come up with names uh-huh. that were more, you know, fit their taxonomy a little bit better. But uh, it yeah. is, it, it, we're, it's like we're holding on to these threads of early 19th century science that ended up being wrong. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, remnants of colonialism for sure. Yeah, I mean, sure. you know, maybe, yeah. maybe that's a more important discussion than uh, some of the ones we're having right now. That, look, if we were going to change all the North American wood warblers to perulas, I would not be against it. I'll just say that. That's my. <laughs> that's my. That's uh, my bizarre bird yeah. take. <laughs> I agree, except that then we get in a big argument about how you pronounce perula. <laughs> right? Yeah. There you go. Names first, then pronunciation. Standardized pronunciation. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh, I agree with you. Like, um, I have this ongoing uh, thing that I'm, I'm on a campaign to change the name of American Robin because it should be called American Thrush. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but then, you know, it's funny but, because American Robin is, um, I guess, a bit more evocative than American Thrush. American Thrush is not a great name either. It should be something like, I don't know, Red Breasted Thrush, something that's more black. black yeah. Thrush. I don't know. But um, yeah. Yeah. Amer- Yes. There's a lot of it's like got um, both things wrong. <laughs> yeah, something a bit more romantic perhaps. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Robin at least has the romance, even if taxonomically it's complete a complete mess. <laughs> it, completely wrong. Yeah. But you know, as an Australian, I can tell you the 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 sort of the hangover of colonial era birding is very strong. Yeah. Um, we have some yeah. terrible terrible names like Cuckoo Shrike and our Robins that aren't uh, anything like uh uh, European robins and or American all sorts robins. of other things. <laughs> yeah, Shrike, Shrike is a great one. And... Yeah, it's, yeah, like, yeah. it's like they just, at, by the time that uh, bird namers got to Australia, they were just like, well, this looks like this and this. So we're going to just throw these names together and make it almost. That's exactly what they did. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, the, they just couldn't be bothered of thinking of anything new. <laughs> right, yeah. The well is run dry creatively. Yeah. What is yeah, the what is the yeah. worst Australian bird name in your uh, in your opinion? The worst Australian bird name. Oh, let me see. Yeah, probably um blackface cuckoo shrike. Oh, you know what? Um Shrike thrush. Shrike, shrike thrush. thrush. It's, it's really hard to say. Yeah. <laughs> Try yeah. saying it five times fast. Shrek, it just comes out as yeah. a mess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, my yeah. least favorite North American one is Olive Warbler um, because it's not Olive and oh. it's not a Warbler. George Armistead put me onto that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't you hate that when everything about the name is everything wrong? Everything about the name is wrong. Yeah. There was an effort yeah. um, not long ago to change it to uh, Ocotero, which is. Um, uh, a name that oh. is used in West Mexico. It's a it's a, a local name, and uh, yeah, I mm. thought that was really good. One because it's kind of a fun. It's fun to say. Ocotero is fun to say, and um, yeah, yeah it, it sort of shows that the bird is unique taxon taxonomically too, because it's its own little family. That's... And uh, I, yeah. it was it was not accepted, but the hope hope oh, springs eternal. Bad. I guess yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe down. Yeah, the road. no, I like that one. Yeah, and it's pronounceable for English. Exactly. Speakers. Yeah, uh, it's easy. Yeah. It's easy. <laughs> Yeah. So how do you hope this bur this book is is used? How do you hope that people when they buy it is it going to be kind of a fun trivia book uh on their shelves or do you think that there's uh there are other uses for it to to make us kind of think about bird names in different ways? Yeah, I think all of those all of the above. Um I'm really hoping that it will appeal to everybody across the bird mm -hmm. across the board. Um whether it's people who just like to look at the birds at their feeders or or, you know, really keen world birders who will be looking up, uh, you know, some some bird name that they've wondered about for a long time, you know, that they saw in Sulawesi or wherever. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I hope it has a really broad appeal and I hope that people find it as interesting as I did. I really enjoyed writing this book doing yeah. the research was a lot of fun uh, it was like being a detective yeah I'd, you know I'd, I'd get to a name and uh you know a couple of the names had me stumped for the longest time and I had to do a huge amount of research to to actually um you know narrow down where the name came from huh. so how do you do that like if you're if you're stumped on a bird name like how what are the yeah. what is the process here are you just like dig deep into the the biodiversity yeah. library, as you said, or do you just kind yep. of have to put it aside and hope some thread of a clue comes <laughs> down, comes from some birding friend or whatever? I imagine there's, yeah, it depends. Yeah, I it was, it depends. But yeah, I mean, I, I think in the end, I, I found uh, there were only like one or two bird names that I just couldn't, um, Pepper Shrike was one of them. I just couldn't huh. really figure out where did the pepper come from? <laughs> And right. I asked, uh, you know, I asked uh, people like Steve Howell and Rich Hoyer, who you know know that part of the world way better than I do, and they didn't really know either. Um, nobody seems to know where the pepper part of the name came from, so I sort of took a guess. Uh, um, but yeah, I started off searching the historic literature, and if I couldn't find anything there, I would um, look up uh, different languages and and see if there was. Any mm -hmm. name for a bird in that language from the area it came from that might uh, give a clue. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All sorts of things. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe Pepper Shrike came to be just because it's fun to say. I don't know. Maybe someone just. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. Pepper Shrike is a fun one to say. 
Three. But Shrike is Shrike is a bird name that's been used for so many birds that have mm-hmm. no relationship to Shrikes whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. So that's uh, an interesting one in itself. Susan Myers is the author of the new The Bird Name book. It is out now. I can't can't say enough about it. It just kind of hits me in the sweet spot of many of my interests. And I, I really appreciate so much the work that you put into it. Um, thank you so much for your time you. and congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah, appreciate it, Nathan. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. The ABA is a membership organization, and we need your memberships to help support us. If you enjoy this podcast, one of the best ways to support us is by joining the ABA. You get a lot of benefits, including our magazines, discounts to partners, opportunities to travel, and the feeling you're contributing to a bigger and better birding community here in the U.S., Canada, and beyond. You can get information about all that at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Jordan Guru of Golden, Colorado and Jay Rand of Southold, New York. I know I more or less say the same thing every week here, but it really does mean a lot to see people joining the ABA because of what we are doing here on the podcast. I love that you will enjoy what we do and choose to support it this way. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Executive Director of the ABA and Executive Producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who does not require a golden lasso of truth like Wonder Woman, but would accept a pair of Crystal Swarovskis of truth that never misidentify a bird. Do they do they make those? Technical production is by John Lowry, who notes that while the Flash is indeed fast, he did not convergently evolve the tubercles as seen in a peregrine falcon nostril, and therefore running at speed would cause the air to go straight into Barry Allen's brain and kill him. Sorry, but you can't outrun physics. Additional help with social media comes from George Munoz, who points out that it is not his suit and his diminutive stature that make Oswald Copperpot the penguin, but rather his inability to tolerate water warmer than 20 degrees Celsius. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere as American Birding Association on Twitter. We are at ABA. This reminds me of the time when I got very close to the snow slam, you know, seeing snowy owl, snowy egret, snow bunting, snow goose on one eBird checklist. I just missed snowy plover. But if I had, it would have been a phenomenal checklist achievement, one that I call the Just Ice League. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Till next week.